0: This is Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about what can be possible in our lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello,
1: welcome back to the show and thank you for joining me today. It's going to be an interesting conversation as we discuss mindful eating. The other day, I had a major mom fail. It's a little embarrassing how bad it was. Now that I've quit my career, I've been more involved in my children's lives and their activities, so there's been a lot of investment. I've learned how hot and bright it can get sitting out on the aluminum bleachers midday at the sun's peak. And well, when you could possibly be in the perimenopause phase, you really don't want to be hotter than you already are. So just picture this. Me on the bleachers? With a beach umbrella. Not a little umbrella, a beach umbrella. Last week, I had a little umbrella, and that was close to ineffective. So this week, I decided I was going to sit under a beach umbrella, which actually requires you to hold the umbrella in your hands. It's not as light or as heavy as you think, but some solid balancing is necessary for a full hour. At game time, 1 p.m., All the games seemed like they had started, and the kids were in the midst of playing, but I didn't see Williams' flag football team, the Packers. However, I noticed them in my periphery as I could make out my husband's shape. They were running around on the baseball field, where they sometimes practice pre-game, so I figured maybe there was a scheduling error, and perhaps all the games were running behind. My husband is my son's coach. Maybe in retrospect, it was a little odd that none of the Packers' parents were on the bleachers. It didn't strike me as unusual that I was the only one confused, as I've never played a team sport growing up. So I literally sat there for an hour. When you have a beach umbrella in your hands, it's not as if you can whip out a book and read it, or look at your phone, because holding the umbrella takes an active effort, and it requires two hands. Then after a lot of time, one of the Packers players walked up to me on the bleachers, telling me that they had won. He was so excited to tell me that he and William switched places in the game, that he played William's position and William had played his. I sat there dumbfounded and I asked this little nine-year-old, did the game already happen? Oh yes, it did. What I thought was pre-game on the baseball field was actually the game. So I pack up my beach umbrella, my cold water, my bag, and I walk to the baseball field. I ran into some parents and I asked them if they got the memo that the game was on a different field. And they told me it was very clear because of the multiple emails my husband sent out. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. It's a little hard to say out loud, but I delete my husband's coaching emails. There's so many of them, and I figure he'll tell me if it's critical. Or if it's sports-related stuff, since both he and I get the emails, I delete mine, because I know my husband is astute enough to read them. Well, it's been revealed. I missed the game, even though I was physically there. He knows I don't read his emails, but I will now. And apparently it was the best game ever. The team's been practicing together for months. And even before the season started, these kids were practicing together for the love of the game and I would imagine what it feels like to play outdoors. And during that game, the work and the connection showed. They were a team. The kids loved it. The parents were so happy and ecstatic. It was exciting. As I sat alone on the bleachers with my beach umbrella, it was a game to remember. As my husband wrote in his email to the parents today, I think that was our best ever offensive performance. And as we move on to our discussion on mindful eating, I wanted to talk a little bit about sugar. According to Dr. Dean Ornish and Ann Ornish in their book, Undo It, it turns out that in every decade since 1950, people have been eating more fat, sugar, meat, and calories. An average of 67% more fat, 37% more sugar, 57 pounds more meat, and 800 more calories per person. Not surprisingly, we're fatter. Obesity has become one of the biggest healthcare burdens since World War II, increasing morbidity and lowering life expectancy. And unfortunately, we're seeing global trends toward a Western diet, containing refined foods high in fat and sugar and low in fiber. Sugar is a substance we crave. There is evidence accumulating on the overlap of neural circuitry and commonalities between drug abuse and food addiction in humans. Studies have been showing that intermittent access to sugar actually causes changes in the brain similar to those caused by addictive drugs and alcohol. It also causes similar behaviors like binging, craving, and withdrawal. Highly processed foods affect the reward centers in the brain, thus impairing the decision-making process, similar to the drugs of abuse. According to the ClinicLaysAlts.com website, sugar stimulates the brain's reward and pleasure centers. The elevation of dopamine and endogenous opioid production through sugar intake helps to initiate a self-reinforcing cycle of repetitive behavior characterized by managing peaks and troughs in levels of mood and energy. As with other addictive substances, sugars may be used to reward, relieve, or comfort. Eating sugar doesn't decrease your appetite, it actually increases it. So with sugar, it's easy to take in too many calories. While we know that sugar causes the body to produce more insulin, this in turn blocks leptin, a hormone that reduces appetite and induces fat burning. So when you eat a lot of sugar, it actually increases your appetite rather than making you feel full. Another fact that I find really interesting, as we've talked about inflammation on the podcast, is that fasting or carbohydrate restriction decreases sympathetic activity, while glucose or sugar increases sympathetic nerve activity. The sympathetic nervous system is important for the fight or flight response. But nowadays, it's chronically turned on as people live stressful lives. So maybe when we're not feeling good, sugar is actually the last thing we want to eat since it feeds the fire. On today's episode, I speak with Kathy Nuss, who is an occupational therapist in Pacific Grove, Monterey, who helps her clients reduce pain, find more movement and joyful movement, manage stress, and increase restorative sleep. She believes that all parts of our lives, how we live, eat, move, play, work, socialize, are in the community, and practice spirituality, will affect our health. You can find her at wellnessfromwithinpg.com. Welcome to Lost or Found, Kathy Nuss. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> And, you know, as we begin, can you tell us about
2: yourself? Well, my name is Kathy Nuss. I'm an occupational therapist. Um, And after working for about, oh, 20, 25 years, I started um, a practice called integrative manual therapy. And a part of that had what they called some functional medicine stuff. There was um, a physical therapist and a chiropractor who were in charge of it. And so they would teach us about supplements and food stuff. But it wasn't quite quite nutrition like I thought it would be. And some of the people in the program would go to um, and do a master's in human nutrition. And I thought, oh, that might be nice to do that at some point. And then a few years later, which was only like maybe six or seven years ago, my girlfriend said, let's go get our master's in human nutrition. I'm like, okay. So we start into this program. It was hard though, because I saw things very much in the nutrition program versus I'm used to working in therapy. And so um, when I did an internship, which you have to do a thousand hours internship to get your certification. And I found this group. um, It was all online um, clinicians incubator. And they they, like, help you to um, get your hours, to build your practice. It's not like you're working for somebody else. They're helping you to build your own practice. And the first four months, they you have to sign up for that. And they give you stuff that they don't think people got enough in school. And their mental health, disordered eating, eating disorders, and um, stress.
1: Wow. When was that?
2: Um, I started that, like, a year and a half ago. Okay. And... I was just like going, I mean, yeah, you think about, I mean, I worked in a psychiatric hospital. I know about eating disorders, but this disordered eating and all this stuff. And then they talked about intuitive eating. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, wow, for me, this makes so much sense. Trusting your body. And I'm like, it's like a whole new world just opened up. Mm -hmm. And so this last year and a half, I had just really been working at how to integrate the nutrition into my practice occupational therapy where I see people that have soft tissue problems. I'm a hand therapist. I see wrist fractures or other hand problems, um, post surgeries and stuff like that. And so how do I integrate this into that so that I can help my patients get further along in whatever it is that they want to do? So it's been, it's been an amazing like journey stuff. So
1: I think that's really fascinating because before when I envisioned occupational therapy, you know, working in the hospital, in the office setting, a lot of times we envision the hand or, you know, small and specific movements. But what you define is so much more in terms of the, you know, the depth and the width of occupational therapy.
2: It's really like wellness. It is. It is. And actually, I just thought about this. This was like back, when did I meet her? There was a a woman who was president of the National Occupational Therapy Association. I mean, like when I was going to school and stuff. And I met her in Denver, like in the early 80s. And I sat down with her with another friend and all she kept talking about was wellness. And I'm like, what's this lady talking about? (laughs) And I've been thinking about her the last few years because that's exactly where I'm back at.
0: Yeah. You know,
2: and really if I think about it, to me, that is what occupational therapy is. It's just people have different avenues where they do that.
1: Yeah. Do you think healthcare care uh, limits the translation of occupational therapy?
2: Yeah, I think it does. Because I think, right, if you look at all of our different therapies, they all get put in this box of you yeah. do this. Like, you know, you're an OT and this is all you do. Or you're a PT and this is what you do. And this is speech. Like specialists. Yeah. And so this is you just you like like speech people, right? You just work on people who can't talk or can't, you know, have to they have some adaption or something. And and yet when you look at all of our practices, they're very holistic. They're very mm-hmm. they can be, you know, but and whole being. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, and I mm-hmm. noticed even with hand therapy, I actually saw um in our national conference, there was a session on nutrition and I'm like, okay, well somebody else is thinking about this too. So because it makes a difference when somebody's recovering from surgery, you need to have more nutrition because that's like your body is working exactly. you know or injuries any of those things. when I worked in rehab we had, I did a lot of spinal cord mm-hmm. patients and try they a lot of the family members couldn't understand why they're um family member couldn't gain weight and it's like they're recovering from massive insult to their body and their body has to relearn all the stuff. It's like they're playing football every day. I mean, that's yeah. the kind of thing you have to think about. That's what you have to feed mm-hmm. for. Is... It's a
1: massive coordination. Yes. And you know, I think you know, I think in society I think we assume we know, but considering the fact that obesity rates are increasing, Do you think we've ever
2: known what healthy eating is or have we forgotten? I think we did know. I think people used to do healthy eating Mm -hmm. all the time. When was that? (laughs) Um, When people like grew their own food Mm -hmm. and before corporations got involved with changing the food. And when, I mean, to be honest, I think it's all part of even capitalism. Like, right, the whole thing about trying to make more money. If all you're doing is trying to grow food for your community or your family, you're not going to use all of these different mm-hmm. things. But if you're trying to increase your supply and like, right, all of these companies said we're trying to make all this um, food so that we can end world hunger. Well, that doesn't that's not what it's It's never been really about that. It's just been about making money. Um But I think when people grew their own food, when, and I think, um, I'm trying to just, like my grandma, I mean, my grandmother grew up in Japan. They lived, they were a farming um, family and she lived to 105 and it wasn't like she had great nutrition all the time, but I think she didn't have processed food until she was much older. And I think that made a difference. Yeah. in terms of, because I think when you, have, you grow things, you know, and even like, you know, we've talked about the blue zones, but before, and that one of the things they said about all those blue zones is for the most part, most of those cultures that they went to, they're still growing their own food. They have the one group in Sardinia, I think they're the ones that are sheep herders. Mm -hmm. And so, right, they have their own meat even. And it's not like you have a big corporation coming in who's going to process this meat. With antibiotics. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, one of the reasons the men in that culture stayed healthy is they're going up and down the side of the mountain with the sheep all day long and stuff. And they're out in the sun, so they get vitamin D, you know, because actually in that group, the men fared better than the women, which was mm-hmm. not usually the case. And they figured it had something to do with their just their movement and being outside.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really interesting thought that you bring up that when we were self sufficient, it's like almost as if people more, were more aware and conscious of what they were putting in our mouths, you know? While food is more readily available, but even those countries that had a well-to-do culture of eating, they're changing as well due to these Western standards where our foods are available over there, like Koreans. You know, Koreans in general have a very healthy diet. It's a lot of plant-based. But if you look at Korean pop culture eating now, it's like they've excelled at fried chicken. They've excelled at like corn dogs, like all different kinds of corn dogs and it's like their
2: standard of changing too about what's popular and what's actually healthy. Exactly. I mean, and like even with with that, because I thought I think about that because in mm-hmm. Japan, um, we lived there back in the eighties, mm-hmm. in the eighty seven, um, and I was just amazed at that you don't you didn't see fat people then. Every so often you would, but you just you didn't. But that was at the beginning of like all of the, um, like, you know, they had Kentucky Fried Chicken and they had McDonald's and all that stuff. Pizza Hut. Yeah. Um, And so it was at the beginning of a lot of that Mm -hmm. stuff. And so some people would have that sometime, but it wasn't like you saw so much. We've been there twice since then. And I'm amazed at the increase in people's weights, Mm -hmm. just walking around places and everything. And I think that just, you know, has so much to do with, you know, everybody wants to be like the West. And I'm like, you don't want to copy the West. Yeah. You know. um, That
1: environmental standard may not be optimal. Because when you have an environment where those fast food places are available, it's really hard to, I think, make the right choices. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And not to succumb, you know, to our fast pace in life. Yeah. Kathy, can I ask you, what consists
2: of a healthy diet then? Well... Really, kind of the healthiest diet you could have is if you're getting whole foods. So, like you're getting vegetables and fruits and um, from you know the store rather than having things that are processed or packaged. Um, and some of the biggest things are diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, different colors, different types of food, and sometimes diversity can be really little things. Um, one of the supervisors, I just love the way she works on a homework plan with her clients is she'll say, well, do you like apples? And somebody will say, oh, yeah, I like apples. She said, okay, well, do you get them in a bag or do you get them, are they just free or do you go to a farmer's market? Oh, well, I get them in a bag at the grocery store. So I have them for a while. How about this week? Can you just go to and get ones that aren't in a bag and just that they're open or go to a farmer's market? Because just that change, Mm -hmm. it changes the microbes that you get. And if you get a different... um,
1: So the variability is good then? Yes.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even little things like that to change. But just that... And all the different colors in our food are different nutrients. And so, like, something like red foods, they can help with um, blood flow. So they can be good for your heart, for hypertension, for all those things. And so having a variety of all these things and they have different nutrients. There's different vitamins and minerals that are along with the colors along with, you know, phytonutrients, other phytonutrients. And so then you just kind of, when you get this rainbow color, you get more nutrient overall nutrients in the wide range that you need Mm -hmm. and stuff. So, and when you make your own food, you know what goes in it and, you know, All of that just kind of helps. It's just all the processed stuff, fast food, um, you know, all of those things. You don't know really what's in there, what additives and stuff, because those are all things that our body is reacting to.
1: What do you think about our supermarkets and like warehouse, like food shopping places where there really is so much processed foods? Like, I think the majority is processed foods that's being sold on the shelves.
2: Yeah, I we try to avoid that. I mean, we—it's mm-hmm. um, hard. I think it's hard because, like, like you said before, everything is so fast-paced, and people need things that are quick. So if they can grab something that looks nutritious to them, but is something they can make quickly and stuff like that, then you know, people will do that because it's easy and it's fast, um, and oftentimes it's cheaper.
1: To buy something in the package. Sometimes, some, yeah, Yeah. depending
2: on what it is, because there's so much of the food industry, particularly like the corn industry, almost everything that they do Mm -hmm. is subsidized.
1: Yeah. I totally, I think what you're saying is so fascinating because, you know, I think in many people's minds, like reaching or buying processed food is like the easy option. Do you think it's possible to make eating whole foods? the easy, mindless option, or is it never mindless when you're eating whole
2: foods? Well, I think, and one of the ways that I like to approach it is, you know, I look at what my patients are eating right now and what their goals are. Um, If what they want to do is be able to be less fatigued or, you know, or to be able to be more active or something, it's like, well, Let's look at what you're you're eating now and what else do we need to add to make that happen? How do how can we adjust things? And I take it in terms of really small small things. You know, like about the Apple thing. Is it changing little because there's a lot of people who, you know, they eat things one way and they don't want to change. Mm-hmm. It's hard for them to make those changes. And so you just want to kind of try to work on little steps with things. And sometimes it's not even about the eating. Sometimes they don't eat well because they're too tired or because they're too stressed. And so sometimes those things need to be dealt with and stuff along with all of that. And so I just take whatever steps are needed for what to help them meet their goals.
1: Fascinating. You know, I think you know eating is so part of our health You know, and considering that there's so many illnesses that people may not know are preventable, Mm -hmm. like heart disease, high blood pressure, heart failure, you know, diabetes, obesity, even cancer. Like I really like our eating is related to what happens in our lives. And it's definitely another way of thinking, like, would we think differently if we knew what could happen? And all of us are susceptible to that.
2: I, I don't know about that because I think a lot mm-hmm. of people know that. I think a lot of people do understand that on some level. There's a lot of details they may not know, but I think, I think there's, there's been a lot of information out there about um, over, like, I don't know, there's been studies about things like um, when things like processed foods became the big thing and stuff like that, you saw an increase in people's size. Mm-hmm. And that there there have been numerous connections made with all that. Um, and, but I think what also happens, and what this does not get talked about, is that the standard American diet, some of the research has shown that um, people lose their ability to tell when they're thirsty. With
1: the standard American mm-hmm. diet.
2: So they can't even tell with the
1: fat, sugar, and salt. You're saying mm-hmm. the intake.
2: Yeah, and I don't remember exactly the study, but that was. I mean, I remember reading about that and thinking, "Wow, that even if you, because if you eat like, I think whole foods and stuff like that. What happens is, what because they have water in them. But when you need more water, mm-hmm. you get thir- thirsty. But if you have so many, so many different chemicals that are coming from all these processed foods, and It just is kind of like, in a sense, I don't know what it does that you don't feel thirsty. But that's one thing. That's probably one of the biggest problems I find with patients is they don't drink enough water.
1: Yeah, that's really like thought provoking, because if our taste buds are changing and it's affecting like how we respond to the food, the chemistry, and if we're not drinking water, then like you're like very not likely to get full. Like, what are we eating then, (laughs) you know? And I I find what you say very important, too. You were saying that, you know, knowing that certain diseases can happen, you know, that fear may not be, like, the most appropriate thing to change our behaviors. But maybe, like, based on what you were saying, maybe feeling good with what we're eating can change our behaviors. Because something that I've been thinking about recently is even my sugar intake. That's a very addictive Mm -hmm. component for me you know sugar intake and i feel like i have to be very aware but the truth is the more i think about it whenever i do have an ice cream like i don't feel well or even the next Mm. day i feel very very bloated and it makes me think about that feeling it's like almost as if you ate too much even though you didn't necessarily eat too much but you just feel like really off and to be aware of those feelings
2: Exactly. I mean, and it was like, you know, the whole thing about the intuitive eating, learning how Mm -hmm. to trust your body. It's like, and I think we go through, we have to go through some of those times where we eat something and we're like, okay, that doesn't feel good. I didn't, you know. um, And I think the more we pay attention to that, we can make better choices about things. But I think the standard American diet has really, it's taken away our ability to even pay attention. And I mean, I just know in my practice, when patients come in and I'm working with them about their pain and stuff like that, what's really interesting is to see that they don't say that they don't have pain. They just go, oh, I, I can move and it's not hurting. You know, but it's not like they, they like laying on the table when I feel like something shifted and I'll ask them move around and do this and they'll say, Oh, no, it feels the same. Everything feels the same. Then I get them up and walk them. And I look at them and I can tell Mm -hmm. something has shifted. And then they go, I said, what are you noticing as you're walking around? And they go, well, I can move easier like. And I said, and what's the pain like? "Um, It's not there. And they like look at me like, where did it go? You know, Um, but the same thing I've seen happen with when people are eating enough of what they need is like. I had one patient. Of, um, she was a wrist fracture patient she was always coming in here really really tired and this is really before i integrated nutrition into my practice and I said well what did you eat yesterday so then she told me and I'm like you're not eating enough food what was it and I mean I don't remember uh-huh. what she said but I said just and I think i, I specifically told her to eat some more protein mm-hmm. I said you got to rebuild your your bone and all this stuff she came in like two days later she goes I ate more like you said. I feel great. <laughs> and I'm like, that's great. I mean, you know, that, but it's like, and that was before I even knew much about all the biochemistry and, and things. Mm-hmm. But then, so now even more so, my intake includes a whole thing so I can see what people are getting. I know what their activity level is. And so I can like, oh, I, you know, I really don't think you're getting enough to sustain all the activities you're doing. And I think people don't understand The whole thing about calories and stuff like that, I think people think that my baseline is zero. So if I eat anything, that's just adding calories. So I have to do enough activity to offset those. And I don't think they understand about a basal metabolic rate.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I mean, I know some women I was walking with in the morning one time, I said something about that. And she goes, wait, what are you saying? And I said, even if you were to lay down in a bed, Not think about anything. Probably, I said, your body, you probably need somewhere around like, you know, between 11 to 1300 calories just to do that. And I said, so you don't start at zero. It's not like when you're not moving, Mm -hmm. it's at zero. And I think so many people don't understand that it takes energy to run our bodies. To run our ship, our vessel. and I really think people don't understand that. And so then, and I think the people who do like was it my cousin was put on a 1800 calorie diet for diabetes. And I'm like, they still do that? I was amazed because mm-hmm. I'm like, I think for his size, 1800 calories doesn't even cover his basic metabolic rate. I'm like, why would you do that to somebody? You know? Um, but I think people don't understand how that works. And so then... They don't eat enough. They get tired, and so then you
1: can't. Follow and for a through. diabetic patient, the last thing that you want them to do be is like become hypoglycemic right? and pass out. And like, yeah. You know.
2: So, yeah. Um, but I think I think people, you know, this whole diet mentality. It's like they just equate how much I ate with how much I have to move to do this, mm-hmm. and they don't understand that you kind of deplete your body, and your your body you you can't. Think as well, you can't move as well, you know, your muscles don't work well. Mm -hmm. And I think that just that whole thing, people just don't understand enough about that when, you know. The diet culture
1: is so lucrative. How do you feel about diets?
2: Oh, I'm not a big diet fan at all. I mean, one of the things with learning about the intuitive eating and all this eating disorder is that um, I made the decision that I actually have a weight neutral practice. Mm -hmm. And that just means that I will not focus on weight loss per se with anybody. Um, I certainly will help somebody treat, you know, if they have diabetes or they have, um, you know, hypertension and stuff like that. But it's not about restricting or it's not about taking things away. Um, Because what happens is like when you ask people to add things, like, let's say I have somebody with hypertension and I, I said, well, you know, let's add some red foods that when you add things at some point, something else has to go. If they're trying to do stuff for their health and they're adding things in, they won't be able to, you know, take all of that. So
1: how would you define intuitive eating? Is that like more of a conscious way of approaching your eating?
2: It is being more conscious about your eating, and I, and I don't know, I've not done any certification with it or anything, but my, my understanding is it's really about coming back to trusting your body, which was mm-hmm. just really resonated with me um, because to me, my whole practice is about pe- teaching people to be more aware of their bodies and how they move, what they eat, how much they drink, the stress, how much they sleep. And trying to find what's the best thing for them in all of those areas. Mm -hmm. And so, to me, intuitive eating is like kind of a framework of how to get back to that. I mean, I think about my kids. When they were younger, they when they got full, they stopped. It wasn't like... And they... um, I mean, both my daughters had a corn allergy when they were really young. And so, like... And one of the worst things was actually corn syrup. Um, And so... They didn't have a lot of the candies and all that stuff. They just, they couldn't, but they loved fruit. And so, you know, in the summer, we would just get all kinds of fruit and there would never be any restriction, but there was never, but they would stop when they got full. They just, and if you watch kids normally, they will, they'll do that. Um, But it's when we don't have stuff. And I think too, if, The whole thing with the standard American diet, if it changes your ability to tell if you're hydrated, I wonder what else it does. And I'm not sure they've studied that in terms of.
1: Well, with the sugar content, they say like with sugar, you know, the whole pathway, it kind of inhibits your feeling that pathway so that you feel full. So if you eat like a candy bar or something high in sugar, like a cake, in general, it's you feel fuller much, much later than you actually are. So it inhibits that whole process.
2: See, which is interesting because that hits your blood much faster than than everything else. Than something that does really actually hit your blood slower, Mm -hmm. which are like whole grains or legumes or something like that. Where it's
1: more of a truthful pathway. You eat those
2: grains, the real food, and then you feel full. Yeah.
1: Because I think with uh, the way food is so available in our culture, I think... Adults feeling full has changed a lot. Like, children stop when they're full. Mm-hmm. I think adults have forgotten when they feel full and they keep on going. Or we overeat in our culture. And I think that's one of the tenets of intuitive eating, like,
2: knowing yes. when you feel full. Well, and I, what's interesting, what I'm finding, is that sometimes patients have a harder time telling when they're hungry. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's so much thing about not eating that they have, like, shut down their ability to even tell when they're hungry. I have patients say, I don't I don't eat until noon because I'm not hungry. And I'm like, when did you eat, like, dinner? And, you know, they might have finished at 7, but it's like, um, but I think somewhere in there is some kind of food rule that they have about that they're not hungry and they just, you know, and I or think... Or they're
1: going to get lesser calories if yeah, they eat I think,
2: less y- regularly or... And I think that's really really sub unconscious for a lot of people and it's just it's just very interesting to hear some of that mm-hmm. but I but to me the whole thing about the intuitive eating is all of the principles are about working back to trusting your own body and that you're in charge of it and one concept I like is when they talk about to um think about the diet mentality is that, you know, you're the boss of your own body. And this is about having boundaries about who's telling you that this is what you have to eat or this is how you have to eat. And it's really about learning to reconnect with yourself. Um, and for some people it takes a really long time. And, um, but it's just, to me, that's, and it's a slow process sometimes, but it's, to me, that's where you get back to, you um, that place where you can go, do I really want to have some ice cream?
0: Mm-hmm. Or,
2: no, I don't feel like having that right now. You know, but not where, oh, it's there so I can eat it. Or, you know, it's Thanksgiving, so this is when we get this food, so I can eat this. Yeah. Um,
1: I think it's a totally different mentality when if with intuitive eating, you actually trust your body. You work as a partnership instead of, like, against it. You know, it's a different mentality if you work forward and with it than, yes, yes. you know, saying no all the time or not thinking about things. You know, I really find it really interesting, or even like an in intuitive eating feeling your satisfaction because sometimes with our lives so busy, you know, as a mom, I really had to think about this. I mean, I need to stop reaching
2: for what's quickly available.
1: Mm-hmm. Because in the end, that may not make
2: me feel good, you know? Exactly. So an interesting thing with the feeling your satisfaction. So there's there's two different principles. Feeling your satisfaction, and I think the other one is about, has something about flavor or something. Anyway, I kind of combined those because I had an mm-hmm. older couple that I thought, I don't quite know how, I mean, going through all the other ones, I thought, I need to start somewhere I can make it really concrete. So... Whichever one it was, it was about like, you know, listing foods that are crunchy or soft or, you know, all of these different qualities. And so I did this during the pandemic. So we're on Zoom and we're going through these lists of different things. And, you know, and all of a sudden, (laughs) the husband says, I don't like mushy foods. (laughs) And she turns to him and says, wait, is that why you don't like hot cereal in the morning? He goes, I don't know. I guess so. And it, it never occurred to him, but he just said, I don't like mushy foods. And, um, and then they're talking, and she likes variety of stuff. So salads that have all these different, you know, something crunchy, but maybe something soft, and, you know, all this stuff. And um, he comes in to get treated one day to me and says, I like chewy foods. And I said, what? <laughs> he goes, I realize I like chewy food. That's why I like meat. Because I can chew it and I can get something out of it. And it's that what you're trying to reconnect to in stuff. Because then it's like, you know, those times you go around and I go, I want something crunchy. I want, you know, and you kind of don't know if you have a better idea, if you're connected with yourself. You know, I just really want something cold. Doesn't matter what it is. Could be a cold drink. Could be something cold like ice cream. It could, you know. Um, so it's like, it's just kind of reconnecting with that. And, it's like an
1: awareness.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Of what you like. And I thought it was really interesting because before we began our discussion, you were talking about how even like certain foods, if it's chewy or if it's crunchy and it's processed, there's there's a certain process that goes into adding certain things to make it chewy or crunchy. And it may not necessarily be real food. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> you know? Or the or whatever they did to the real yeah. food.
1: Or like you say, how when you eat processed foods, you're not going to feel thirsty, mm-hmm. even though there's a lot of salt in there.
2: Because really, if you think about a lot of the, um, you know, the, I can't think of the right word. The, um, the restaurants where there's just a bunch of them, those franchise ones and stuff. So much of that food, from what I've read in books, comes there already prepared to mm-hmm. some degree, and what they do is. It's already been fried, and they re-fry it. And then they add all the sauces and stuff like that. And you just, I mean, if you think about a lot of those places, you watch people eat. People just eat really fast, and you even wonder if they even taste their food. Mm -hmm. And it just has a lot of fat and sugar and salt on that. And, which is interesting that you would think you would get Thirsty after all, really that.
1: thirsty. You know? Yeah, um, but then I guess like if you're at those places and the straw size is very wide, wider than usual, and you're drinking sugar, you know, that's you true. And it inhibits your feeling full. Then more to it, you know.
2: Although I wonder if it yeah. might be some of the sugar that's in the food. Yeah, too.
1: I had a question because one another tenet of intuitive eating I read is honoring your hunger. So. For that person who thinks maybe eating less meals is reducing their caloric intake when really it could be reducing their metabolic rate, mm-hmm. like even when you're not hungry, let's say in the morning, do you recommend that people eat se- several meals a day or what do you typically recommend? Like,
2: I mean, generally people get hungry at some point uh-huh. in the morning. I mean, one of the things I do tell people because there have been some studies about people that don't eat anything in the morning have a higher risk for um, having gallbladder removal. One more time, people who don't eat- Who don't eat like some kind of breakfast or something in the morning. Interesting, okay. And this was- Because they don't feel hungry. Yeah, Yeah. and this was, it was um, a researcher from USC who researches longevity. And I think somebody was asking him, it was after his talk, somebody was asking a question about intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you have to be careful because there are some studies that show if you don't have any meal in the morning, if you're getting all of your food just in the afternoon, that that that, there is a higher risk of gallbladder removal surgeries.
1: So. And the people who generally, generally need gallbladder surgery and the medical, you know, definition of who it happens the most to, it's female, fat, 40, and fertile, the four Fs, they call it. Ah, uh, okay. I didn't know that. You know, it's not always the case. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: But actually, that really makes a lot of sense because I've had a number of patients who have had their gallbladders removed probably all around that time.
1: So you think maybe having are you suggesting that maybe having a regularity in your meals is actually a good thing?
2: And yeah, I mean I think, you mm-hmm. know, and it, you know, then it also has to work in your schedule and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I think right when people just hear about whether it's intermittent fasting or this diet or that diet and they just read something, there's so much more there's nuances to it than they really understand that there's just um Just to go and follow these things that they see just online. Or I know, like, recently on my phone, there's been some, like, little commercial things that's all about intermittent fasting. Like, you just download this, and then you do this and this. You put how much you want to lose and all this stuff, and it'll tell you when you should eat. And it's like, right, we even lose that ability to know when we're going to eat or know um, what we should eat. Um, Don't give away
1: your power. Right. And yes. listen to your body. Yeah. Because I think ultimately, like we give away our power or use all these apps to, I don't know, even like not just a diet, but also when our baby cries, how much our baby is eating, you log it into this app when you just know. <laughs> I know. Right. I, that <laughs> You know, like, you know, the trend. You can just look at the baby you know, there's things that we know and that's so obvious that we don't really need to. Uh, smartphone to be telling us.
2: Exactly. It's
1: like we're giving away our knowledge and our power to something I, that's not even breathing, you know? Like.
2: I would agree with that. The other thing is I thought about this the other day. I saw this commercial about incontinence supplies. Mm-hmm. And it says you never have to be embarrassed again. And I'm like what, I'm supposed to be embarrassed now? I mean, right? Right, they tell you how you're supposed to feel. And I'm like, I've never, you know, I haven't bought incontinence supplies, but even like menstrual supplies and stuff like that, right? It was always, oh, I don't want to go buy this. Somebody's going to know I have a Mm parent. It's like, you're a woman. We pretty much know that's going to happen. I mean, there's just... There's a certain
1: judgment on what you're supposed to
2: feel about something. Yeah. And I mean, that's there. And then when you just see one diet thing after the other... And you're just like, sometimes I'll just sit there and watch them going, these things are kind of hilarious if you kind of think about it sometimes. But you just kind of, right, they're just feeding into either somebody's fears or all of these things. And it's just, and one of the things as nutritionists, there's been a lot of discussion about is how the diet industry, because they know diet's not a good word, they've overtaken the be healthy thing.
0: Yeah. So
2: then everybody is all, oh, I'm just trying to be healthy. I just want to get healthy. But then you see them restricting, they're weighing themselves all the time. They're, you know, um, it just, and all of those things are just indicative of going down this pathway towards disordered eating or even ending up with an eating disorder. And
1: I think if someone is selling to you, be healthy, you know, they're selling it to you and it's their standard. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to figure out what our standard is and, I think it really begins with all of us. Like, what are you feeling in your body? How are you feeling? You know, what can you do about it to get more information, you know? Exactly.
2: Um, just the other day, I, a patient um, texted me that, oh, you know, the pain in my joint came back. And I'm like, okay. And then she said, I'm going backwards. And I'm like, oh, she keeps doing this to me. <laughs> like, so then I thought, okay. I've been trying for a long time to get her to listen to her body. So I said, I want you to scan your body and tell me what, what your body's telling you. Cause I said, and I've told all my patients, pain is your body talking to you. Mm-hmm. It's not good to ignore it, but it's telling you. And if, if there's nothing you do and it goes away, what did you not hear? Um, and so whether you're, know, and just like, is it in a tissue, does it feel like it's bone, or is it muscle, or does it, I can't tell, or, you know, but just if you start to pay attention, and what she realized is that she did too much. Like
1: too much activity? Yeah, it wasn't that she's
2: Mm -hmm. regressing, it's just that Mm -hmm. she had gone from, yeah, they've been taking walks and stuff, but they had company and stuff, and so Mm -hmm. she started to go, oh, I did this, I did this, I did this, and it's like, Yeah. So then, you know, so then what do you need to do now? Well, I need to kind of give myself a break. and a, Yeah. You know, and so it's like, right, just like rather than going, oh, I have this pain. What do I need to do? You know, mm-hmm. and this kind of panic thing is like, just take a breath and pay attention to what your body is mm-hmm. trying to tell you. Like thinking about the context
0: of the yes. situation. Yes.
1: Like I work nights. Because, you know, I quit my career last year. <laughs> I worked nights to support my new adventure, you know, as I'm figuring things out. And I noticed that after my 12-hour night shift, the day after I'm super, super tired, I, I don't feel well, you know, I, I have, like, more of a propensity to eat total crap. Like, I want mm-hmm. it, you know. And the other thing is I have a lot of negative thoughts in my head. Oh, interesting. It's when I'm the most depressed and anxious after my shift. And it took me a while to figure it out. And it was so obvious. I didn't sleep all (laughs) night for like, you know, a full 24 hours, you know. And the thoughts that I have or even the foods that I want to eat, they're all not real. And really, ultimately, what I need to do is sleep.
2: Exactly. that's it, And that's great to me that, right you're trusting your body, but like, you have to stop to go, why am I feeling like this? What, you know, and it's, but it's that conversation is that our body is more than willing to tell us. It's, you know, I really, what I've thought about is I wonder if instead of coming up with medicine, the way we did, if we believed that God or whoever whatever superior being put us on this planet and gave us everything we needed, we just had to find it, what medicine could look like. Because right now, medicine, right, there's how many herbs and things and stuff like that that they've always been here. Mm-hmm. And that if we would have thought that we have abilities even within ourselves maybe to heal ourselves, if that Absolutely. would have been, you know, you just kind of, and i thought about that you just kind of wonder what our healthcare would look like and it just i think it that's part of what i think about that's part of what i think about when i try to treat people helping them to get back in touch with their bodies and that and that your body doesn't need to look like your neighbor's body yeah you know all of our bodies are different you look at you know there's judgment everywhere yes well and then the other thing just recently with all this anti racism stuff There's this book about um, fat phobia and how it's related to racism and stuff. And I'm like, this is fascinating because you're going, well, yeah, in a renaissance, all those ladies are kind of, you know, chubby. And that was seen as Mm -hmm. wealth and affluence. Right. But then it has to do with there's this whole thing about, you know, then when they started slavery and stuff like that. And right. Of course, there's mixing with things. Oh, now we kind of can't tell who's totally black and who's totally white. So then the whole thing about, well, it seems like black people are bigger and all this stuff. So then, right, what do they do is all of a sudden the the church gets into it and sets up the standard of, well, what beauty and health looks like is thin, white, you know, and all this stuff. And you're like going, this is fascinating, Cause the whole thing about some of the um body positivity things and stuff like that, so much of that is being led by a lot of black women. And I've just I I mean, I've been reading one book lately and I'm just like going, wow, this is just it just opens up this whole other world to you about this thing that is now related to all the diet programs and all that stuff, and it's just like it's kind of you. You just wonder how circular all of this stuff is. Yeah,
1: and I think with like the level of judgment or what society tells us is supposed to be beautiful, you know, that's not necessarily right. Just because a very big corporation does it a certain way, you know, we shouldn't necessarily follow those views because that may not be the way. Way like I don't know. Something that I always bring up is healthcare. You know, healthcare does not think about the overall well-being, the whole body, the whole being. Exactly. And I think that's a huge problem, but many people accept it. But when was the last time your doctor or someone, I hope you have that person, told you what you need to do to not develop hypertension instead of just getting your blood pressure in the office? And then your blood pressure is always taken in the office. And then what happens when you actually develop hypertension? They want to give you a medicine after two readings of high blood pressure. They don't really give you like a fair chance to maybe wouldn't be a bad idea to what are you eating? Mm -hmm. You know, how much activity do you have in your life? What's your stress level like? What are your social connections? There are so many questions that we should be asking, but we're not. And if we're trusting organizations like this then like I think you're giving away your power and I love the idea of body positivity because there's not one way of healthy there's not one Mm -hmm. way of how someone could look and then there's also so many environmental triggers you know we blame it on the individual yes you know like for instance like the doctor feels really badly really guilty that she didn't do enough for that patient when maybe the system didn't give her enough time to actually see the patient and say some important words. Yes. Because she's constantly rushed. Do you know what I mean? It's like there are environmental triggers and I think there is a lot of that in terms of food and health.
2: Yeah, you know, I like would the agree. The
1: availability of processed foods, you know, it's that's what fills our, you know, our supermarkets or fast foods. You know, the availability of fat, sugar, salt. Yes,
2: exactly. (laughs) You
1: really have to think about it to not go there because the easy thing is to go there. The harder thing is to not go there, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, like the U.S. introduced spam to, well, it wasn't, I think it was, was it the Marshall Islands first? during World War II, but then Hawaii really... Yeah, during Korean
1: War, Koreans yeah. loved
2: spam. You know, it was well, like the readily Hawaii, available too. food. I mean... Musabi. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it was funny because somebody recently... Because, I mean, I had spam growing up because of that. But there was somebody yeah. recently who said, I was just telling my mom that you're the first person to introduce me to spam. And I'm like, I what? And I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> and it was at some church youth group camp out that we had gone to help with. And she said, yeah, you guys were cooking it up. And I said, what's that? And I said, it's spam. And I'm like, I talked to my husband. I'm like, oh, I kind of vaguely recall this. This was years ago. And she goes, yeah. She goes, I told my mom, yeah, it was the nusses They introduced me to this. And I'm like, wow. But she'd never had anything like she'd never, she didn't even hear about it.
1: Yeah. You know, back in the 90s and two thousand, like, if you would go into a Korean supermarket, they would have, like, a whole, like, not even a shelf, like, from ground up, cans on top of each other of Spam. And Spam was so a part of my diet because, you know, that's what my mother ate when she was little. And uh-huh. it was, like, growing up post-Korean War. And... I love spam so much, but you know, like it's kind of gross. But the part I love the most was the jelly, <laughs> <laughs> not the spam. Oh, that's how bad it was, you know. But anyway, that was my childhood. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand. There's a lot of depro- deprogramming, like knowing what is healthier or not. You know, I was kind of curious because I find intuitive eating so interesting, and like the idea of honoring our hunger making peace with food and like kind of like challenging or shutting that food police a little bit but how do we really do that because if like let's say we have the food police in our head right and you know if you're eating beans oh good for you you're making a good choice but if you're like eating a piece of cake your brain tells you oh bad choice but you still want to do it but then like intuitive eating also tells you to honor your hunger Mm -hmm. like how do you
2: do all that and not limit what you eat? Well, and generally at the beginning, when people first start doing this, they may tend to overeat just because they have been so restricted. Um, But I mean, I know I would go through periods where I would really want ice cream and I would eat it like every day. And so I thought, and I think it was during when I was introduced to intuitive eating. So I thought well, what if we just have all the kinds of ice cream that I like and we just have it in the refrigerator, in the freezer? And let me see what happens. And at first I would eat it a lot. And then after a while, I would like go weeks, months. And I'm like, and I I would ask my husband, do we have ice cream? He goes, yeah, we still have some at home. I'm like, oh, we do? And then I go home and like I go, oh, yeah, there's still some here. That when you know... You can have it whenever you want. It's amazing how that shifts, because I I will tell you that I grew up with a mom who she had like I don't know three or four heaping teaspoons of sugar in her coffee, mm-hmm. um, and I was used. I always thought, oh, I just have a sweet tooth and stuff. What's interesting, what I find now is. I may still have a sweet tooth. I don't know because, but my sugar cravings are way down. But sometimes what I'll do is I feel like I want something sweet and sometimes it'll be, I'm like, but I don't want, I don't want to eat a cookie. I just, it's like, it's too sweet. I don't Mm -hmm. want, and so sometimes it'll be like a kombucha that's enough or a piece of fruit and stuff. Um, And sometimes I might like pay attention more and go, do you really want something sweet or do you just still hungry? And then sometimes what I get is, you know, the chestnuts, mm-hmm. the roasted chestnut things. Sometimes I'll get that because I know they have a lot of carbs in them. Um, and that I'm like, oh, this is what I needed. I really, I need more energy. Mm-hmm. Not that I needed the sugar. I needed something that will give me more energy and stuff. Yeah.
1: It's kind of like understanding those emotions and mm-hmm. or in even like delaying and thinking about about
2: eating before you actually eat. That's like a lot of thinking too. <laughs> yeah, well, but right, it's and but it's like anything else. The more you pay attention to it, yeah. you kind of get and then you get it gets faster and faster. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like it's um I mean it's even like within our bodies. Like for a while I was doing a lot of classes, um, seminars in Feldenkrais because I thought about doing that. And at one point point, we were taking a walk through town and my back just started hurting. My husband said, do you want to turn around? And I go, no, I work with the body. I should figure this out. So then I like just paid attention and I like just froze my lower back. And so I thought, okay, what's normal is to have rotation there. So then I just like exaggerated that and we walked and the pain went away. Walking still and the pain starts to come back and I'm like, okay, what are you doing? I'm locking up my back again. Just walk. You know, I accentuated that rotation again and it went away and it didn't come back. Mm-hmm. And so, right, it's like listening to our bodies in whatever way it is, whether it's movement or whether it's food or what we want to eat. And that's why some of the different things they have is about like learning what does satisfy you. I mean, figuring out, you know, like, that one patient of mine that she likes the variety in the mm-hmm. salad of the different things, whereas her husband seems to like more individual, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Or being very aware, or being aware in general of our satiety. Yes, yes. You know, I think we, there's so much mindless eating when maybe it should be more mindful.
2: Yes. Which, and there's a yeah. whole thing just on mindful eating. Mm-hmm. There's a guy who, that's all he's written about, is just paying attention to your eating and Mm -hmm. when you do eat more mindfully you can pay attention to when you get full Mm -hmm. like every chew (laughs) like feeling it tasting it i mean because like enjoying it even in that blue zones book Mm -hmm. one of the things that he talked about is that a lot of these people eat till they're not hungry not necessarily till they're in those longevity countries yeah Mm-hmm. So they eat till they're just not hungry. They've had enough. Because because there's a difference between eating till you're not hungry to eating till you're full. And then there's actually an eating till you're overfull.
0: Mm-hmm. Because yeah.
2: intuitive eating kind of breaks this down like hunger too. Like there's hunger when you're just a little bit hungry mm-hmm. to primal hungry where you eat anything there because you are starving. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's, you know, learning that there's a spectrum in all of those things. How
1: do you think Americans eat? What, to what level?
2: Oh, they... I mean, if you watch people eat in restaurants, they act like they haven't had any food in days. So to, like,
1: overfull in general. Yeah. And the plate sizes are oftentimes very large.
2: Yes, and there's a lot of food.
1: Yeah. The thought to maybe leave half, it's, its like, definitely has to be mindful or a thought. Yeah. You know? Do you believe in the five pillars um, of the Blue Zone diet? You have Dan Buettner's Blue Zone Diet, which is um, whole grains, greens, tuberous products like sweet potatoes and potatoes, nuts and beans. He was saying that in those countries where, you know, there is the greatest statistics of longevity, where people live the longest. I think it was like Sardinia, wasn't it uh, Loma Linda, California, yeah, well, actually, Linda. someplace in Greece,
2: and um, I forgot the three one, Costa other Costa Rica. Rica. Costa Rica. It's, it's some peninsula in Costa Rica, and yeah. then Okinawa.
1: And he was saying that you know, with the five pillars or uh, of the blue zone diet, more plant, which is more plant-based, you know, meat no more than five times a month, and even considering decreasing fish and eggs, that that's what their diet composed of. But also, social connectivity or feeling some mm-hmm. kind of spirituality, as well as walking more. Yeah, not exercising necessarily, but walking more. Yeah, he I thought it said was fascinating.
2: Very few of those people. Like, worked out. Yeah. But they, um, like, one of the one of the elderly people in Loma Linda, they, um, he went looking for this guy who was, like, 90-something. And he sees this guy who he would have sworn was, like, in his early 70s. to has his shirt off, and he's, like, setting posts for a fence. And that was this 93-year-old guy, guy. And he said, you know, I, I got... You know estimations for a fence, and it was going to cost four thousand dollars. He goes, "Well, I can do that for cheaper." And he yeah. still was driving from Loma Linda into L.A. to White Memorial Hospital and doing surgeries um, once a week. And he said, "It's up to my colleagues to make sure they tell me when I should not be assisting anymore." Wow! But that connection with his colleagues mm-hmm. and all that stuff—you know—that or loving what life, you do, yeah, right. All of that stuff mm-hmm. and. Part of the other reason the Loma Linda group is part of the Seventh-day Adventist church. They have these family days where they go on hikes or they have picnics or they do something physical together as a family, a Mm -hmm. community and stuff. But, yeah, there is all those other things that have – because, like, the nine things that he came up with out of the book, only three of them had to do with food. Mm -hmm. And they really weren't, like, really food-oriented. One was that except for the Loma Linda group, all the other ones had alcohol. Mm-hmm. every day small amounts. Um the other one was um, mostly plant-based. And then the third one was that they they only ate what and he said the Okinawan people had it, a term for it about till you're 80% full, not till you're all the way full. But the the rest when of When you're
1: not hungry anymore like Yeah, you were you're saying. not. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And those were the only things that had to do with food. Everything mm-hmm. else was about interaction and people and you know particularly I think the one he said especially I think after he was in Okinawa because they said something there was some term in Japanese about the reason you wake up in the morning.
1: Yeah I think life purpose. Yeah. And I think that's something that we as Americans don't think about like why do you wake up in the morning? What is your life purpose? And I think your life purpose shouldn't be a job that you don't care about. You know, that's not a, I mean, I think we all have to, I think if we think about, he was saying, if you think about what your life purpose is, it adds to longevity. And I think a lot of people Mm want to live a long time. But as a doctor, you know, living a long time can mean many different things. You know, Mm -hmm. are you going to live a long time with many chronic illnesses and we're just like prolonging your survival? Or are we going to be prolonging life where you're, Actually healthy and happy like that 90-year-old doctor who's still performing
2: surgeries. You yeah. Know?
1: There's meaning to every single step.
2: Which is, I mean, my grandmother lived to 105. And her brain was better than two of her kids. <laughs> At when, I mean, she just, she was clear. She, you know, and she loved, we would take her places. She would start slowing down, and my uncle would say, "Your grandma's slowing down." So we take her to the Jelly Belly factory and up in Sacramento and stuff. And she just loved to see places and see things. And like every letter she ever sent to any of her kids, you know, she would talk about, "Well, you know, so and so took me on this trip, and then we went across these bridges and stuff." And you could get a map out, mm-hmm. and she literally could see every bridge she went on. And but you know, she was. She worked in her garden probably till she was about 100, maybe 101. Wow. But she never had medications until she was 99. I think that's what kept her healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, I mean, as
1: we end, what do you think are the benchmarks to healthy eating?
2: The biggest thing that I like to recommend to people, just in general, is that you have like real foods you know, fruits, vegetables, meats, grains, you know, but that they're like whole grains and just less processed stuff and that you have a variety of foods. I think the variety, diversity is good in our microbiome. It's good in the world. It's good in biology. Diversity is good in terms of our food and that you enjoy your food, that your food... It feeds you in ways that are not just, you know, okay, I have something to eat, I'm not hungry. But that's the whole thing about, right, gatherings. And that's what's been so hard this last couple of years, is that there's so much gathering around food that that's part of of what food has for it. It brings people together into a community. So those are the things that I would really focus on.
1: I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Oh,
2: I enjoyed it too. Thank
0: you. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found. Please subscribe and follow Dr. Michelle Choi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.